Great question, right? Where are you headed? We make plans we're to, to head to vacation, right? You know how much it's going to cost. You know where the lodging is. You know what, what the uh, things are that you're going to do, the activities. You make plans in your career, right? Where are you headed in your career? Oh, i got to take this, get this certification, and I'll get up to this income level, and I'm moving this way in my company, and I'll do this. And, you know, we make, we make plans in life sometimes with our, you know, our extracurricular activities, right? We, we've got a plan, and we've got a direction. We know where we're headed, and we'll make plans for where we're headed. But here's the question we need to consider. Where are you headed spiritually? Where are you headed where are you headed? What have you done in the past to bring you to where you are now? Which I think most people are like, it's not where I need to be. And what do I need to do now to head to the future that Jesus Christ wants for me in my life? Where are we headed? Last week we began by looking at Acts chapter 2 verse 42. If you remember in verse 41 it says that 3,000 people had just been baptized into the Lord's, into the Lord's house. That that time was an explosive time for the church and then it opens the door and it says here's what those people were doing acts 2 42 it says they devoted themselves they were they were they were deeply connected they devoted themselves to these things to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer and if you read beyond that, Acts 2.42 and the rest of the book of Acts, you just see this church just explode, the gospel go out. It's even come into our church today, that same gospel, because of what that church did way back in the book of Acts. It's amazing to consider. They knew where they were headed, and they charted a path. Last week when we were talking about those four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayer, we talked about that word fellowship because a lot of times what we've done with fellowship in the church is we've made it this time, you know, where it's like we eat together and we see each other in the lobby. We go, hey, how are you doing? Oh, good. How are you? Good. Busy, busy, busy. Yep, yep, we're so busy. Okay, goodbye. And we go worship together and that's it. And we call that fellowship, right? But that's not what that word means. That word is koinonia. That's a great Greek word. You should name your son or daughter koinonia. I just think it'd be cool. And, but koinonia means a deep, intimate fellowship where you actually know each other and you're actually in each other's lives, sharing, edifying, helping grow spiritually one another. And that's where we need to be headed as Christians. And that's where we need to be headed as a church. So I'm asking you, where are you headed? Something else I just want to just begin with this morning is just a, a baseline because we talked about this last week too. As we define what a disciple is, I think that's important for us to understand. As we use that terminology, what is a what is a, a follower of Jesus? What is a Christian? What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? And what we did last week is we used Jesus's own words when he called the very first disciples. He's walking along the beach. He sees the the guys fishing out there. Got the business going. He calls them to shore, and he gives them a challenge, and he says this, and it's found in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 19. He, he says to them, Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You probably heard that, right? You probably, I mean, if you're a kid and you got to grow up in a, in a Sunday school or jet cadets, whirly birds for Jesus as a child. You probably, you probably heard this. You remember that story. And you remember, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We wrote little songs about it. 
Well, there's so much there. There's really three, three calls for a disciple that's found right there in that verse. There's, there's these three things that Jesus says to a disciple, to someone, one, to someone that's going to uh, come and join his group and be a part of him. He says, first of all, you're going to follow me. You're going to do what I say. You're going to keep my commands. You're going to obey. Follow me. And then he says, and I will make you. A better translation of that would be, I will make you in two. It gives us this idea that there's this process, there's this transformation, there's this change that Jesus is going to make in the lives of people. Come, follow me, and I will make you into, and then what's the last part is fishers of men. You're going to join Jesus on his mission. His mission is to seek and save the lost. It's to fish for people. And so we identify a disciple and define a disciple as a church like this. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, someone who is being transformed by Jesus, and someone who is committed to the mission of Jesus. And the question we posed last week was, does this describe you? And if one of your friends were to describe you, would they say yes? Yeah, that person does those things. They follow Jesus, they're being transformed by Jesus, and they're on mission with Jesus. But more importantly than what your friend would say about you is this. Would God in heaven look down and say, yes, that is one of my disciples because they're following me. They're changing. They're being transformed by me. And they're on mission to seek and save the lost, to share that faith and that gospel with other people. This is the point of their life. And they get it. So we go back to the beginning and say, where are you headed? What direction is your life taking you right now? Because Jesus did this with a group of people called the disciples. We're called to do it with other people. We talked about this last week, how fellowship, koinonia, is not by yourself. You don't fellowship with yourself. <laughs> it's hard to practice the biblical one another's when you're following Jesus and doing what Jesus asked you to do and you're obeying him and living for him. It's hard to put those things into practice without relationships with other people. But what is our tendency and it's so much more today as we, as we have these, these wonderful devices with screens that we can hide behind and we just post it, you know, and, and, but we don't have to have a relationship with the people on the other side of the screen, right? We have this tendency today, I think more than any other time in, our, in history, to drift, and it's a drift, it's a slow drift toward isolation and autonomy and, and, and just keep people, oh, oh. You're a little close in here, right? That's none of your business. Well, it is my business. You put it on Facebook. Well, that's still none of your business. I just put it on there so you can like me and give me a thumbs up, all right? It makes me feel good. Releases endorphins. There's you know, studies on that. So, you know, I, you tell me, I, tell me I look good on vacation. My toes on the blue waters are awesome. You know, I mean, come, come on, man. Was, but that's not koinonia. That's not fellowship. That's not what we're called to be as a church family. And if you think about it and you think about your life, this makes sense. Because if you were to reflect on your life right now, and I don't care if you're 18 years old, if you're 30 years old, if you're 90 years old, if you were to think back on your life right now, and you would just think back at, you would just say, man, this was fun, good memories, good memories, right? Your good memories are always with other people. Very, not very often are you like, man, I was by myself this one time, and I almost died, and it was great. You know, it's like, no, that's not... 
That's not, I was driving in the car and I had an accident by myself. It was wonderful, you know. I was in the hospital. No one came to see me and talk to me or anything. It was great, you know. I made a ham sandwich and watched a TV show by myself. It was the most wonderful time of my life. No, all of your experiences and all the joys and sometimes even the valleys, the things that were sorrowful or hard in your life, someone was there for you. You remember those things because we are created to be in relationship. Two relationships we focus on in life, our relationship with our Heavenly Father God and our relationship with one another. If you guys want spoiler alert for Bible trivia so you win, okay, what are the two things the Bible focuses most on? Here's the answer, your relationship with God and your relationship with people. That's it. I mean, you summarize the whole scripture in it. When Jesus gave us the, the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. What is he talking about? Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Okay? The whole Bible, all the law and the prophets are, are really summarized in, in those things. But the devil has a plan too. <laughs> he doesn't just sit on the side and be like, oh yeah, man, I'm just going to let the Christians do their thing and I'll just deal with the rest of the world. No, he's like, I want to knock the Christians out too. Let's isolate them. Let's get them not to be able to open up and be real with anyone. I don't care what they're going through. Health problems, mourning the loss of a loved one situation at work that's just horrible, financial ruin, got, got, got into the sinful pattern, got into something illegal or immoral. Now, we're not going to share that. We hide those things. We suppress those things. I mean, we, we can be like mainstream media, right? We're just going to hide it, suppress it. We're going to bring this to the forefront and put this imagery out there, but we're going to pull this back. But again, that's not what we're called to do in Scripture. We're called to be family. I was thinking back, it's about 15 years ago this month, uh, coming up in September, uh, that uh, I became senior minister here at Oakwood. And I was thinking about, like, man, I was reflecting on this the other day. It's like all the hopes and dreams, you know. Uh, it wasn't something that, that I was looking for. Uh, it was something that kind of came, came looking for me, and I had to pray and, and consider it. But I remember thinking, I want a church that doesn't have fans of Jesus, but it's like followers of Jesus. And I want to be a part of a church where people don't just attend church, but they attach. And that it feels like family. Because I had had that experience growing up as a child. This wonderful church that was like family. I mean, these people were precious in our lives. And sometimes we'd get a little, you know, get into each other's lives a little bit, get a little bit messy, you know, get a little agitated with each other. But we practiced and, and lived out the biblical one another's. And so I don't want a church where you just attend. I want a church with like family where we attach. I want a church where people don't just go to church, but they grow in church. And they, and they don't just stay the same. But as we spend life together over time, we say, man, man, you should have known her like seven years ago. What a mess. But, dude, she's so awesome now. She's teaching in the children's ministry, making disciples. She's baptized three of her friends. It's like, it got me thinking about that stuff too. It's like, man, do you ever, you ever in life just wish that you could like, you could have this request and God would just answer it, answer it instantaneously? Like if you just, like it would just be God's will and, and the timing is perfect right now. Like you could just pray something or ask for God something and he would just give it to you like right then. I mean, that's, that's really a bad view of God sometimes because ultimately we submit to his will. He doesn't submit to ours. Sometimes we get this, you know, God's our genie, and we pray, and boom, he makes it happen. Or, you know, God's like Santa Claus, you know. We pray for what we want, and boom, he gives it to us, and, and Merry Christmas, you know. And, and that's not really a healthy view of God. But I, I was thinking, what if it was like spiritual things? 
Like, what if, if I could just wish it for our whole church? Everybody sit in this room right now. What are some things, if I, if I could pray God and God said, I'm going to do it, Eric, what would it be? I thought of this, and I, I thought of a couple things. The first thing would be that you would be a part of someone's conversion, a part of them giving their life and their heart to Jesus Christ, and that you'd see it through by baptizing that person. I just think every Christian needs to do that. I think it's the Great Commission call. I'm just going to be like, oh, man, I can never get in the in the baptistry waters, and I'm not holy enough, or I'm not this enough, or I'm not that enough. But we see in Scripture, man, God will use anyone to reach anyone, right? And so it's like, I just wish that for, for you. I think it would be awesome. I, I was also thinking, I, I wish that, that, that you would have such a view and you would trust God so much that what you possess, that those possessions wouldn't possess you. Because I think we fight this rampant materialism in our world today, and it's even crept its way into God's people in the church that, that we will sacrifice this pursuit of finances and money and stuff at the expense of the gospel. And then I was thinking of something else. I, another thing that I would, if I could just do it in an instant, I would wish for you to have a group of people, a small group experience, where you get to see people actually live out koinonia, biblical Christianity in its purest form where they're all just seeking to build one another up, encourage one another. Yeah, sometimes that means we've got to call each other out and, and, and help each other when we're drifting toward temptation or we're moving the wrong direction, we're moving away from God. We've, we, we love each other so much we can't let each other go there, right? You know, it's kind of like that whole semi-illustration. Someone's out in the road, they're, they're doing something, and that semi's bearing down, and there just comes this point where you just run out there and you grab them and you swing them to the side of the road and you save their life. Like that kind of thing. They, we would have that kind of koinonia, that kind of fellowship. We care about each other so much, we just can't leave each other in these sinful situations. And I would wish that everybody would have those kind of people in their life, those kind of friends. I mean, if you want to know like, the ultimate goal of, of growth groups here at Oakwood, that's it. That you would find your friends, you'd find your people, that you would you'd be able to actually share things and grow and be real. Like, it's not, it's not facade time, it's not fakey Christianity Oh, yeah, our marriage is perfect, our kids are perfect, and my life is perfect, our finances are perfect, my job is perfect, and everything is perfect. That's not what those are designed to be. It's like, no, this is me, real, unplugged, unfiltered. Here I am. I want to set it out all on the table, and we're going to love each other and grow through it. And God's so awesome, he can take all that stuff and sanctify it and make me look more like Jesus. And I'm hoping that maybe a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, that I've grown so much that I look different than I do today. Because that's how Jesus makes you into fishers of men. He transforms you. He changes you from the inside out. And one of the ways that he does that is people. There's so many, there's so many illustrations of this in, in the scripture where God sends people. There's also a whole bunch of people in scripture that kind of have this tendency to drift toward autonomy and, and isolation. I want to share one with you this morning that I think is just it's someone who's super well known. His name is King David. So if you have your Bibles or you're in the app, as, as Jeremy said earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be, uh, begin this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll be in Samuel most of our time this morning. If you want to follow along there, we just love you to read the scripture for yourself, allow God to speak through the word this morning. It's, so, it's illustrated so well all over Scripture. We're using King David. Now, if, if you don't know King David, you may have heard of him, but uh, you remember David and Goliath? Same David, little shepherd boy David, oh, play on your harp David, sing songs in Sunday school about David, that, that guy, David. 
That's who we're talking about this morning. He's now king. Where we pick up the text this morning, most scholars believe he's somewhere around 50 years old. He's been king of Judah for 20 years, king of Israel for 13. So combined kingdom, he's been king over all of God's people for about 13 years at this time. Let's just see what's going to happen here. In uh, chapter 11, we're going to begin with verse 2. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Because, you know, he's king, his palace is up on a hill, it overlooks everything. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And he did not want to look at her lustfully. So he turned away and went back into the palace and went back to bed and prayed. No, oh, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. Sorry, I got up there. That's what should, should have happened. If he had a friend there to tell him, hey, knock it off. But from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Well, that guy should have said, David, are you, are you, are you sure? He didn't say anything. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, uh, she is Bathsheba, because she was bathing on the roof. Queen of Sheba, she looked really good. The daughter of Eliam. And the wife, she's married, of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Man, amazing what can happen in three verses, right? Totally messed up his life. And I'm seeing everything thinking, David, where's the accountability? David, where are your friends? Where are your people? If you read on, and I'm just going to summarize for the sake of time this morning, the next uh, several verses in the text. uh, Basically, he brings Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, home from war. He's off fighting war. He's off with all the other guys. Now, the interesting fact is that if you read all the chapters leading up to this, David has been off war, uh, war with these same people. David had great success as a warrior, and he was hanging out with his brothers in arms, and, I mean, they were, they were kicking people groups, you know, out of their territories, the people that were offensive to, to God and his laws and his people, people that were practicing cults and all those kind of things. I mean, David was on a win streak. He was out fighting with his band of warriors, with these men, with people like, like Uriah the Hittite. But he, he summons for Uriah to come home, and basically he says, Hey, Uriah, so glad you're home, uh, buddy, because guess what? You know what happened? In verse 5 and 6, it tells us Bathsheba is pregnant. We have a problem. And so he does what so many people do, and he tries to control the outcomes, right? Cover it up. Cover up the sin. People knew. Messengers knew. His family knew. People knew. But he he invites Uriah to come home. says, Uriah, hey, man, you've been fighting so hard. I'm just giving you a few days off here. Why don't you go home and be with your wife and just have some home time, some family time, and sends him home. And Uriah feels so guilty. He's so loyal to that band of brothers that's out there in the field fighting the battles. He said, man, I can't go in there. I can't go in there and whine and dine and be with my wife and act like there's nothing going on here. And it says that he actually slept outside of his own house with the servants. The servants of David are like, hey, just so you know, if you're trying to cover this thing up, make it look like Uriah and Bathsheba's baby, it ain't happening. He didn't even go in the house. So David calls him into the palace. Hey, dude, you're doing a great job out there. You're fighting great work. Go home, be with your wife. Does it again. Sleeps outside with the servants. Will not go in and be with his wife. Brings him to the palace another time. Says, hey, 
well, I'm going to throw you a big dinner, man. You need, you need to, you know, and he gets him drunk. The scripture says this. He gets Uriah drunk and then sends him home drunk thinking then, okay, now he's, you know, he's inebriated. He's under the influence, not of God right now, but under the influence of alcohol. So this is going to be great. We're going to send him home. He'll sleep with his wife. We'll pretend like it's our baby. We all live happily ever go, you know, cover, we'll go control the outcomes, cover up the sin, control the circumstances. But even in his drunken state, he doesn't go home and sleep with his wife and he, he's going to be sent back to battle. And then we pick it up. Uh, down in uh, verse uh, verse 15. Um, but before, before we get there, I, I just want to say this. That Satan's plan is that we drift toward isolation so that we are singled out and fighting his ploys without other Christians to help. The devil likes us alone. The devil likes us by ourselves. The devil likes us to not have anyone in our life that would help us pursue our relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so his plan is that we would drift. We don't make this conscious decision. You know, it's just a slow drift toward isolation so that he can single us out. You think about this, this makes sense, folks, right? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did it say? That the devil led him into the wilderness. It was one-on-one. Get Jesus away from his disciples, away from the crowds, away from everything else, you know, Want him by himself, and then I'll drill down on him. Then the temptation will come. It, it, it makes sense, folks. I mean, Peter writes about this when he's writing in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5.8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he will devour. You guys have seen that on Discovery Channel, right? The lion is over there, and, you know, and there's the little gazelles and the little antelope, and they're so cute, and they're, you know, they're eating the grass, and the lion's like creeping up. And what does he do? He waits for that one that gets over here, and he just loved that tuft of grass, and everyone else is moving this way, right? The whole herd, all 80 of them are over here. The lion knows, I can't take out 80, but I can take out one, and what does he do? He sneaks up. He gets the one that's isolated. He gets the one that's by himself. He gets the one that detached from his friends in the herd. The devil prowls like a roaring lion, lion, seeking who he will devour. That's what's happening here. David is not with his friends. He's not with the guys he's been fighting with for like seven or eight chapters in the scripture here. And then we get to verse 15. Actually, we'll go to 14 just so you understand what happened here. In the morning, so he, he, didn't, he didn't go home and sleep with his wife. He didn't do what David wanted him to do. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. That's the commander of his armies that's out in the field fighting this war. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Okay, so Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, is carrying this letter with him. And in it he wrote, this is verse 15, in it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Whoa. Now we're going to control the outcomes here, right? Right, David? I mean, now we've ordered a murder. Now, if you know Joab and David, they're, they're friends, man. They've been fighting together, but Joab's not there. Joab's not there to say, whoa, David, what is going on? Joab's out in the field. He doesn't know what David's done. He doesn't know what he's trying to cover up. All he knows is he's got these orders, and even though David's his friend, it's like, David's also my boss. I got to do what the king tells me to do. Now you've ordered a murder. 
So Uriah dies, and he didn't die by himself. It wasn't like he's the only one that died that day. I mean, a whole bunch of soldiers died in that battle as they withdrew. And so you know what happens? They're going to have a funeral. Oh, he's such a great guy and all this stuff. And then David will move Bathsheba into the palace. He's going to marry her as one of his wives. Outcome controlled, right? No one will know. Nothing bad will happen. It'll be great. But people knew. They're not stupid. The servants knew. And somehow, if you read the rest of 2 Samuel and beyond in David's life, you find out his kids knew. They lost a lot of respect. In fact, if you start right there and you read the rest of David's life, you see that people don't respect him as much. Because they all knew. They knew. They just didn't say anything. Because, you know, it's not it's none, none, of their, none, of their, none, of their, none of their business and, until God says that it is. And that's when we get to 2 Samuel 12. So if you're in chapter 11, just turn over there to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it begins with this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan. Why? Because David was isolated. Because David wasn't listening to anyone. And really no one was saying anything to him. All of his best friends were out fighting the war. He needed a friend. He needed someone in his life who could help him. Now, if you read scripture, you're like, oh, this is the first time Nathan encounters David. No, 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 they have a relationship. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you might remember that David had, this, had concocted this plan that he was going to build a temple for the Lord. Okay, the temple at that time, or, or where the Lord was dwelling amongst the people at that time, was in the tabernacle, and it was in the tent, and, and he felt bad. He's in this palace. He, David said something like, well, I'm in this palace that's made of cedar, and the Lord's out there in a tent. This shouldn't be. I'm going to build him a better house than my palace. I'm going to build this temple of the Lord. And he reached out to Nathan. And he said, hey, Nathan, are you going to do this? And Nathan said, hey, whoa, whoa, David. I don't think this is God's plan. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about this. And Nathan says, hey, hey, this is not God's plan. One of your sons will build the temple. And if you know your Bible, you know what happens next. It's going to be his son named. Solomon, and Solomon is going to build the temple. But David, you're not to build the temple. One of your sons, that doesn't even exist maybe by this point um, in chapter 7, uh, one of your sons is going to build the temple, and so you need to focus on this. And so Nathan and David, they have a relationship from back then. And the Lord sends him here in chapter 12 to David. Let's read what happens. Let's just read it. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said this. He tells him a story to illustrate a point. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, hundreds. But the poor man had nothing except this one little ewe lamb he had bought. He had raised it and when it grew and it grew up with him and his children. It was in their house like a pet. Okay, It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. This was their puppy dog. Okay? This was like a pet to them. It, it, was, it was eating at their table, sleeping. I mean, this was, this was an inside dog, okay? And it was this little sheep, and they loved this sheep. Now listen to this, verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5. David heard this, and David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. 
He must pay for that, lion, that, for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul and Goliath. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Yeah, read on and read about his son Absalom, David's son. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And look at what David does and says. Look at his reaction here. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Do you see how God used Nathan to bring about repentance and confession in the life of David? And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Wow, God is so good. The Lord has taken away your sin and you're not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. And David and Bathsheba's first son will die. If you read the rest of that chapter, you can read about that part of the story. And you're thinking, what a tragedy, right? Who's David? He's described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And David will lose credibility. It's like I said, if you read on, you feel like at this point forward, there's just issues. There's problems. Some of his own family turns against him. Absalom tries to overthrow him and kill him. Absalom. And he loses his son. He loses his son with Bathsheba. But if you're thinking back and you're thinking, dude, how could we, what could have happened? How do you avoid this? Because he's like any other person, right? He's like the devil tempts you, you give into the temptation, now you're sinning against God, and now you've made a complete mess. Well, I did an old pastoral tactic on you. I skipped a verse at the beginning of the sermon. So we started in 1 Samuel 11, verse 2. Let's go back to verse 1. Because maybe that'll shed a little light on where, how we got here. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, 
Now, this isn't just some like, oh, it's springtime and the flowers are blooming, let's go off to war. No, this was like a strategic time to go to war. Part of it was weather-related. Part of it was because the harvest had come in. But in the springtime, when they're supposed to go off to war, David sent Joab, his buddy that he'd been fighting with the whole time, out with the king's men, the king's men, David's men, all of his brothers and the, all the guys he'd been hanging with and having all the success with, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He isolated himself. Where were his people? They were all fighting without him. I just begin to wonder if, because there's no one else mentioned here in all the, other, the scriptures before and after always mention other people in David's life, had he isolated himself and had this lack of friends and had this lack of accountability and relationships in his life, and it opened the door to this temptation and to these poor decisions. It made me think of scriptures that actually one of his sons would write, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 is written by a guy by the name of Solomon. It's credited to being written by Solomon, who is a son of David. This is what Solomon writes. Hey, Dad. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Did you catch that? Also, if two lie down, they can keep warm together. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's really two lines of thinking in this text for application for the life of a believer. The first one is this physical realm that, hey, two are, can accomplish more than one, and three can accomplish even more. But there's a spiritual connotation to all of this text as well. Because notice when it says they fall down, I don't think they mean they like trip. I don't think they meant like they were sawing and the buzz saw fell off, you know, cut off their hand and, you know, it's like, you know, and I wish someone was there to rush them to the ER. I don't think it's what it's really referring to there. I think it's spiritual. If either one of them falls, no one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls that has no one there to help them up. And then you look at the end. Though one may be overpowered by temptation by themselves when you're taking on Satan by yourself, two can defend themselves and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Why? Because you have people in your life that are speaking the truth. It reminded me of the book of James. James, at the end of his book, chapter 5, the last two verses, 19 and 20, says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth, that word wonder means a planet that falls out of orbit. If one of you should spin out, Spin out away from God. You ever experienced that with somebody in your life? Or maybe you've experienced it yourself? If any of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. God can use people in our lives to help us avoid these things, but we got to let them. Every Christian needs some real friends that will encourage them in their faithfulness to God. Every Christian needs some real friends that will encourage them in their faithfulness to God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says this way. This is how we're to speak to one another. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We are going to speak the truth in love. 
If you directly translated that from Greek, it would be truthing in love. We're to be a people that are truthing in love to one another because every Christian needs some real friends that will encourage them in their faithfulness to God, which leads us to the last thing this morning. Your friends influence the quality and direction of your life. So befriend some solid people of faith. Let some people in your life. Look what it says in Proverbs. There was like 30 verses of Proverbs I could have shared with you this morning, but here's just a couple. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Wouldn't it be nice if you'd had a friend that would have given you some heartfelt advice before you did that thing that ruined your life? Before you did that thing that is still plaguing you today, oh my goodness, if I would have just had somebody to talk some sense into me, right? Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, a friend loves at all times. But a brother is born for a time of adversity. They're going to stick with you through thick and thin. They're going to help you overcome that temptation that you've been given into for so long, and it's going to powerfully change the direction of your life. What you long for. God wants to use people. God wants to use people in this room, in this church, to help you. Where are you headed? Spiritually speaking, where are you headed? I hope and my prayer is that you would be headed toward finding your people. Because most of us, if we're honest right now, I bet you might not have people that really know how you're doing, that really know how it's going at work, that really know about the temptations in your life that you're struggling with, that really know the state of your marriage, the state of your relationship. And you can have a story like David's. Or you can allow God to use a Nathan to speak the truth in love, to help cover a multitude of sins and save you from wandering from the truth of Jesus Christ. Would you open your heart to that?